Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Blog Talk Radio here. A minor technical difficulty there as we reconnected. KWAD Radio, broadcasting this evening on our newest tele- uh, radio program called The Next Space. We'll be talking about New Space, which is covers a broad area. We'll be talking a little bit about NASA Space, and we'll be talking about how this applies to the upcoming near future. Some of this will be straight news, carrying out to you some of the stuff that have been happening this week, this month. Uh, Some of it exciting, particularly this week. But we'll also be talking, and I'll be sharing some commentary, and hoping that as you call in to join us and and have your own comments, we can generate a uh, a dialogue. Our number here is 715. Feel free to dial in. Challenge me. Question me. Let's go for it. Head to head. I'm on. Let's. Are we back? I can't tell. Looks like we're back on. We're having issues with our connection, but we'll trudge on through, soldier on through as we get along and go forward, see how well we do. Um, Anyway, welcome, folks. We're calling this show The Next Space. Our theme is not just about science, but as we move forward, we want to look at um, one of the biggest interest areas in space today, and that's settlement. Now, let me be clear here. Settlement is not a base. Settlement is people living 24-7, boots on the ground, eating, drinking, sleeping, working right there on the moon, on Mars. Shoot, let's, let's include asteroids and Titan and Callisto and Ganymede. These are all potential prospects for real selection so and settlement. So as we go forward in our commentaries and in our news coverage, we'll be looking with things with an eye towards how does this help us move forward towards space settlement, opening up the frontier for real people, you and I, to actually have the opportunity to go out and live in space, on the moon, on Mars, and further out as opportunity presents. So without further ado, let's start with just some of the news things that have happened this week. Uh, probably the biggest thing uh, confirmed just uh, yesterday and today is SpaceX delivery to the International Space Station of a new shipment of supplies and science experiments. 
food, legs for the robonaut, um, and parts and experiments for things such as new food experiments to help them maybe grow some lettuce and other items as they develop further capabilities. Something else, and I've, I've made comment before about NASA's Robonaut, uh, a robotic um, robot, literally, whose purpose is to be able to do certain tasks outside and inside the ISS that might be dangerous or hazardous for the astronauts or mundane and routine that the Robonaut can do those for the astronauts instead of taking their expensive time. And what they've done is they've sent up a pair of legs for the Robonaut to actually complete out his physical form. So it'll be interesting to see how this uh, robot that actually has been up on the ISS for over a year, if I recall, maybe as long as two years, but I'm not sure. I'd have to check my notes. Um, in an additional news, SpaceX has signed a lease for Pad 39A, winning, winning out over um, the other guy. We won't talk about them right now. Uh, pad 39A, which, if you'll remember, was the pad that the shuttle launched of. And what they're hoping to do is that sometime next year, we will actually see the Falcon Heavy. We've been watching with bated breath and anticipation and all the fun we've been enjoying watching SpaceX deliver with the Falcon 9 cargo deliveries and so forth this year. And we're looking forward to the Falcon Heavy debuting next year uh, in testing and hopefully the following year to begin um, developing into a, a long-term launch craft. Also, many of us, and all over the Internet, I remember seeing pictures and uh, actually got to stand out the other night uh, when our uh, lunar eclipse, and I actually watched part of that go by before I got too tired and came in. Um, eventually, later on in the evening, turned into a beautiful blood-red moon and then moved on. Another discovery this week in astronomy, exoplanet in, I believe it was, Gliese, Earth's cousin discovered, um, Kepler Space Telescope, found a planet that is just slightly larger than Earth's. Um, than Earth, uh, named Kepler-186f. It's orbiting a faint red dwarf 500 light years away in Cygnus. And it's been, Kepler's been looking in this area because they've had a lot of good luck in finding uh, other objects of great interest. It's the first validated Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of another star. And, of course, that's important because the more of these we can find, the more likely we might find one close enough to reach. In lunar science and astronomy, uh, the Lady Air, uh, spacecraft actually used up the last of its fuel this week and ended up crashing into the surface of the moon. Um, we've got lots of stuff going on. Uh, we had a progress ship uh, dock up with the space station earlier um, in the last <clears throat> two weeks. We've got lots of activity in NASA. You've got stuff from, um, what else have we got here? Let me get down my list here. Um, uh, 
Let's go back and we'll talk about the biggest thing on the news, SpaceX. Kudos to SpaceX because here was the thing. Not only did SpaceX deliver another reasonably flawless launch to the International Space Station, but they also actually made progress in their drive to develop a reusable launch booster. Now, the one challenge that I have on this is that the details that we have are sketchy. They're still working to recover that uh, Falcon 9R booster. And if they can recover it, and if it's in good enough shape they can refurbish that, they may actually attempt to refurbish it and launch it this year or next. Now, in addition to the cargo launch, they also sent up several <clears throat> jettisoned five small research satellites, CubeSats, that will perform a variety of technical technology demonstrations. Um, and it was grappled this morning. I'm in Arizona, so we're looking Eastern Time, Sunday, April 20th, 714. Earlier this week, we got news that NASA had tested its supersonic saucer for Mars missions. Now, just a little background on that uh, unit. We're looking at... Um, a true flying saucer-shaped object. It's called the Low Density Supersonic Decelerator, and it's due to, to fly for the first time sometime in this June. Now, they took a quick peek at it in Pasadena, and it's ready, being ready. It'll be taken to Hawaii, sent up to an altitude of 120,000 feet. Now, for some of you may remember a few months back, well, several months back, we had Mr. Baumgartner get up to 100,000 feet and do his record-breaking skydive. Well, keep in mind, this is 20,000 feet higher than Mr. Baumgartner's skydive. It'll fire a rocket engine to rise even higher to 180,000 feet, and then it'll start falling. Now, during its descent, it's going to inflate and blow up like a big pufferfish to increase drag, slowing itself to about twice the speed of sound. And then that'll trigger the deployment of a 100-foot-wide parachute, which should then slow it down. For so what's all this about? All right. NASA had to use a complex rocket-powered sky crane to get its one-ton Curiosity rover onto the surface of Mars in a couple of years ago. But the payloads required for human missions to Mars are going to be more, much more than that. I mean, we're looking at a potential 100 tons. The sky crane can't handle that. So Matt NASA needs something else to slow these cargos down to be able to handle deceleration and get them on the ground safely. Now, <clears throat> the interesting thing is I've been looking at the pictures of this thing, and it's really intriguing. Um, Again, a low-density supersonic decelerator designed to inflate like a balloon pressure front and goes from down from Mach 3.5 to Mach 2. After that, it'll be interesting to see what they, they do beyond that. Um,
it's hard not to focus on the dragon. It really is. But there is other news that we need to keep in mind of. There are other developments. Bigelow was in the news uh, this week, or was it last week? I think it was, uh, in that they talked about uh, there were two proposals. No, I take that. I stand that back. Bigelow's been in the news a little bit this this year in that towards the beginning of the year they submitted two documents to NASA. One talking about uh, proposals for the use of Bigelow Habitat units, the BA-330s, for use in orbit and perhaps cislunar space, including even going as far as to place one on the moon, or a series of them on the moon. They've developed uh, everything from the landing components to help the habitats actually arrive on the surface of the moon. They've developed tugs uh, to service the habitat, uh, three of which in their um, proposal, which was interesting. And then also in a secondary document, they identified the prices, which conceivably aren't all that bad given the way that um, space is handled uh, in its price structure today is with cost plus contracts and things like that. Bigelow is offering in the range of $25 million for use of the habitat in lunar or in Earth orbit, excuse me, Earth orbit, for one-third of the habitat for a price of $25 million for a 60-day period, if I've got my quote correct. Now, this is interesting, especially when you consider that that habitat has a capacity of six people. But I really wonder about the economics and the approach, because if he's marketing to um, commercial companies, let's say pharmacology or uh, biological research for humans or even for uh, metallurgical research, He's got to convince these businesses to pay for not only the time at $25 million for 60, 60 days, but they've also got to pay for the person's expenses to get up there as well through whatever space taxis we're going to be using at the time. Bigelow is, is interesting in what they offer. And just a, a brief little recap. They've had two units in orbit, and as far as I've watched for, there's no indication that they've dropped out of orbit. But there are two units up there, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, launched in 2006 and 2007. They've been up there the whole time. As far as I know, they got telemetry for two or even three years for sure that everything was all hunky-dory and ready to go and, and live and progressing forward. But they haven't been able to translate that into a commercial model. And therein lies the challenge. Let's talk about another couple of people making strides. In, in NASA has been looking for people uh, that actually NASA's been working on their lander program. Let's see if I can find in my notes what that thing was called. Um, and they've been touting their ability 
to um, develop Project Morpheus, that's the one. Um, got a great video online, uh, definitely uh, worth, worth checking it out. Um, but pop-up windows, you got to hate them. The, um, but the test flights are designed to do basically what the uh, grasshopper did and has done over last year, which is take off vertically, hover, or even as the grasshopper did uh, in one of its tests, shift over to one side several hundred feet and then land back on a launch pad. We've got NASA is doing this with Morpheus. You've got SpaceX is doing it with the Grasshopper. And now the Falcon 9R test bed. You've also got Mastin, Armadillo. You've got, and I distinctly remember seeing several other companies, including Blue Origin, uh, who are working with this kind of technical capability. So one of the interesting things here is, is as I sit here and I look at this, why? what is it that they're having to test here if they need it's almost as if they've got to refigure all of this out now I understand SpaceX having to test the Falcon 9R because they're dealing with a different set of variables than we did with the lunar landers the lunar landers human piloted they were um, new tech at the day but we solved a lot of problems with that through NASA and other and other teams coming together and working on this national project. But I have to wonder, in, in the 60s when they developed the general conditions for that to work, what is the challenge that we face now that companies are still doing the same kind of landers? Now, if they're working on uh, advanced materials, are they working on more powerful computers? I guess I'm kind of confused with some of this because one of the things that science doesn't do is it doesn't share nice. And in fact, I had a commentary some time ago where we find it, we struggle as members of the public to find out what science is doing these days. It's almost bad as trying to figure out what a politician is doing. In science, they do their papers, they write them up, they send them out to different publications to be peer-reviewed, and if the reviewers come back and say okie-dokie, then they get included in that publication. And I can imagine uh, some scientists may have to shop their papers about in order to find a receptive publication or even look around to see one that actually covers the topic of their particular area of research. And you know, I've tried many times, and because I am not a rocket scientist myself, to gain access to some of these documents, and it's frustrating. you got organizations that are wanting you to pay $35 for a 10-page document. When I can go down to a nearby bookstore, and for $35, I can get... Um, a hardbound book of three, four hundred pages that is a treatise on physics or calculus or chemistry. So I have to wonder what is it that is so valuable 
about these people's papers, we have to pay $35 for 10 measly little pages. But anyway, back to my topic. In space, the same issues abound. If we're going to get access to what's really happening in space in a time frame that says, oh, they succeeded at doing this, the news media is kind of looking at a lot of this as like, okay, well, been there, done that. Maybe we'll see something new, maybe not. And so what we see, unless you're on one of the space-related websites like space.com or Spaceflight Daily or Spaceflight Now, you're not going to get these bits of news. And finding this information is challenging, but unless we, the public, take the interest and say, hey, what gives, guys? Come on, open up, let's see what you got. We're not going to get that information. Space Station is exciting. But how does it apply to us? And what can we do about it? It's a huge expense. We're talking billions of dollars every year to maintain this. And far be it for me to say space is cheap, because it ain't. But i got to wonder how when spacecraft cost, well, let's go back to the shuttle. A billion dollars per launch. And that was supposed to reduce launch costs. It was also supposed to be reusable. But between the politicians and the cost plus crap, everything grew to hugely exorbitant values. And this, in my opinion, is one of the core, and I think I hear it echoed in multiple places, is a core failure of the NASA programs. Buzz Aldrin released a book, actually last year I think it was, his uh, Roadmap to Mars. Yeah. And it was an interesting perusal. I mean, I, I looked through it and so forth, but you know, I have to admit, he, he took he took some real strides and really went farther than many people have gone before. And while this is a good thing, I don't think it goes far enough. We have demonstrated the technology to put men on the moon, not once, not twice, but three times for sure. Apollo... 11, 13 came home, 14, 16, maybe it was four times. I can't remember back that far. We've sent craft the size of a Volkswagen bug out to Mars. And I give congratulations to NASA because every one of these craft has in every single instance of a successful launch, landing, traverse, trajectory, however you want to say it, nearly every craft that NASA sends up lasts between two to three times longer than it was intended to. So what does that tell me? 
tells me that NASA sets its expectations way too low. And this is a flaw because it lacks realistic projections. I suspect part of those projections that NASA uses for its triple redundancy programs are a requirement of congressional mandate and the bureaucracy that goes with it. But let's take a look at some of the, just kind of an overview of what's been happening the last few years. Virgin Galactic has been taking the technology developed by Burt Rutan and Scale Composites and bringing it up and commercializing it, which is a wonderful step. More power to Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. I think this is one of the first big steps that we needed to make. We've got to commercialize this. Another one is XCOR, which has been a very steady, deliberate pace. They've made some wonderful progress. I remember in the early years how I was very doubtful that most of these uh, commercial space enterprises would even last. And, of course, uh, things like uh, the Kistler program, or later being called Kistler Spaceplane, I forget which direction the evolution went. But it never really sur survived. And, of course, now we have some real strong contenders in SpaceX and its Dragon. We see Virgin Galactic ramping up for full-scale commercial operations, uh, if not next year, the year after. We see XCOR preparing for uh, manned uh, testing this coming year. We see um, Blue Origin making strides, even if they keep everything shrouded in secrecy. We see um, Orbital Sciences with their Cygnus craft as part of the COTS program, delivering cargo to the ISS and also preparing for um, manned uh, taxi trips. So there's a lot going on. And just for some of you who may not be aware, there are some other things. Uh, an international corporation, uh, Excalibur Almaz, still plotting forward on their, um, on their work on uh, the lunar cycler. So, but a lot going on. And because of this, I think um, we need to take another look at what's going on. Um, we've also got organizations like Skylon from, um, oh, I can't remember the best company name. in the British Isles, developing a space plane. This space plane is different because it uses both jet and rocket capabilities in one engine, which would give SpaceX a run for its money in the cargo arena. In addition, we've got Bigelow Aerospace, capable. Excalibur Almaz's is route is to build a lunar cycler mostly for research. They're looking at maybe keeping 
two people on board for its trip around the moon and back. You've got Dragon, you've got all of these other things. In addition, you've got the ULA delivering its rockets and cargo. We've got JAXA delivering cargo. Ariane. There's a lot going on, guys. And yet, where are we? Where are we? And where are we going? I remember a little trip through history not too long ago, and I was curious what a frontier was like. And, of course, then I remembered the Old West shows from um, the TV and how we always had the guys with the white hats and the dark hats, and you had the... The, the guys in the middle, and you had the farmers against the ranchers, and you had the sheep guys against the cattle guys, and there was a lot going on. But I remember what we didn't get in our books much was what went on before we got those spread out western towns in Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, California, Wyoming, And that was this big, broad thing that the government decided to do in the mid-1800s, where they opened up a land grab. It was the biggest, one of the biggest things they ever did when it came to giving people free land. They did a series of, oh, what did they call it, uh, land runs or land rushes, where they'd line people up in a different place, and you'd get all ready to go. And the rules were, you find a plot of land, you stake it out, and you had a year or two to actually make it produce. If you did, it was yours. You can keep it. Just file a claim. This is, I think, representative of what a real frontier is. Homesteaders. People taking all or most of the risk to lay a claim and to go forward. To establish a home. I think we are in a convergence today, in this decade that we can go one of two directions. I don't think there's three directions. I really don't. I think we're headed for a point where either A, NASA is going to collapse into an astronomically observatory-type organization. They won't have the money to spend on big rockets anymore. They won't have the ability to look at a manned space program they already can't afford it. And what happens with this is that maybe SpaceX succeeds and maybe they don't. 
If SpaceX can't bring the prices down further by an order of magnitude or more, their goal, and I think they're poised to do it, but the challenge rises in bringing able to bring it down so that everyday people can afford to take the leap to throw their minimum of supplies on board and to ride out to the frontier and stake a claim. Bigelow was in the news this year talking about the need for property rights on the moon, particularly in light of the Space Treaty of 67. But here's the thing. <laughs> and I, and I, I just sit here and I wonder, who's, who is going to go out and enforce any kind of property rights on the moon? Who's going to go and enforce the mortgage payments? How would that even work? The West of the Americas was rife with corruption. It was a frontier. But generally, people banded together, and they created a small civilized area. At least after they were able to subdue the Native Americans and plop them onto reservations, stealing their land and all that kind of good stuff. We'll not get into that. We don't have Native lunar, Lunarians on the moon. We don't have Native Martians to deal with. But this issue of property rights becomes is becoming a political hot potato. And I sit here and I sit back and I think, well, why are politicians spending all of this time worrying about something they can neither control nor have access to, nor can they enforce anything on the moon, much less Mars? Why are they wasting our tax dollars and time spending all this time discussing and arguing over property rights and not spending time and money on getting people there? I'll be the first to agree that a frontier is deadly. Not just from the lack of air, not just from the lack of water, not just because it's, you, you can't go out without a suit on. But let's do a comparison. Let's go way back in the tales of frontier. And let's look at when the pilgrims arrived or when other groups arrived from England or France or Spain even. Those groups who didn't make friends with the natives, those groups who sought to set up housekeeping just like they did in Europe, building houses and creating farms like they did in Europe, failed. Nearly every one of them. Jamestown is often touted as a success, but you got to remember it took them three tries over several years to get it right. As far as I can tell in my research, only the Mayflower Compact Group got it right the first time. They set up a compact, a charter as it were, between them, not between England, old King Henry, and them, they just set up a compact between themselves, a way they would maintain their health and safety. Because the king back in England, he didn't give a rat. 
any more than our politicians here in the U.S. Congress or the Kremlin or Parliament give a rat about anybody who's going to be living on the moon or Mars. They don't care now. They're not going to care then. So where does that leave us? Well, property rights assigned by any government on the planet Earth are ridiculous. They have no value. They'll only have value to the people living and scratching an income out of the surface of the moon. Now, you send a bunch of people up there to establish a base on the moon, according to NASA's own documents, the most you're going to get is a two-week stay at a time because that's all that NASA can afford. And for that matter, even the Russians do not have a way to send enough supplies for any stay longer than a couple of weeks. Maximum. That's not a settlement. That's not a settlement. It's also not a permanent presence. It will also never build economy. If you're listening in, Feel free to call in and challenge me. I invite you to. I dare you to. 714-242-5145. I'm a new voice in the next space. Challenging the status quo. It's time to move on. It's time to open the frontier. Call in. 714-242-5145. Let us know what you think. I have many acquaintances that I... Uh, watch and many groups that I follow on on Facebook and throughout the the web and oftentimes you know I hear people talking about well let's just create a lunar lunar elevator okay how are you going to do that what's your first step to establishing lunar oh robotics we're going to send robots down they're going to mine the surface of the moon and they're going to then smelt and create the materials and then they're going to construct all these materials and manufacture them into this cable. And then they're going to create mooncrete to anchor it into the ground of the, of the moon. And they're going to have these little spider-type robots that are going to climb up this cable and extend the cable as they go. Okay, that's all fine and well. A nice, nice science fiction. The best timetable I have seen for a lunar elevator, if we started today with robots on the moon, today is 20 years. I cannot recall reading anywhere where anybody's estimated any time any sooner than 20 years from the start of development on the surface of the moon. And that assumes you've already got a supply of raw materials to convert into your cable. And that doesn't include the construction of the car nor the people that will ultimately operate it. So we're looking at 20 years if all our researches, resources were spent on just that one project, we could have this thing built. I don't think so. I don't think the uh, funding gods would let anything last that long. Now, do I think that a space elevator is a good idea? Sure. But not on a 20-year timetable. Too much happens in five years these days in technology, much less 20. In the time it took to build the space shuttle, so much happened that the shuttle itself 
changed and evolved way different than the original planners did. And as a result, those changes caused delays. They caused increases in pricing. A long-term project for the settlement of space cannot just be based on a funding plan from the government. It's not going to work. Apollo worked because it was targeted for 10 years or less, and it took us nine years to put a man on the moon. Wait a minute, I might be wrong on that. Somebody tell me if I got that right. I don't think I do. But we had two men on the moon before the end of the decade, which was exciting. I remember sitting in front of my color TV screen, and we had the first one on the block. No, no, see, I'm mixing my memories. I'm getting old here. Okay. But I do remember sitting in front of my TV watching that black and white image from the moon Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon. It was a glorious moment. It really was. And it was a great moment for this country. But it was a Pyrrhic victory because within two more launches, two more trips, yeah, we had the excitement around Apollo 13. And then 16 and 17 went up, came back, or 15, 16, 17. And yet, this was boots on the ground. They grabbed a few rocks and they came back. Yeah, maybe, okay, maybe we learned some things about the moon. But did we learn anything productive? We learned a lot of science. But did we learn anything productive? I remember I, I, I ran into a report a few years ago that talked about one of the Apollo crew had gone, they had landed close to another Apollo site. And in the course of their experiments, they wanted to go over and see what had happened to the metal of the other site after the several years. And I remember dimly that there were some very interesting and, and very surprising changes in the metals of the craft that they had delivered to the moon. That's productive knowledge. The question now is, was that a good change or a bad change? We don't know. Did it make the metal brittle or did it make it more dense? Did it make it more pliable or less so? We don't know because the paper that I read didn't go into that. At least not in terms that I as a layman, armchair rocket scientist, could figure out. Let's go further. I, I can't recall all of the craft that have gone to the moon. We've had at least a half a dozen rovers from the United States, three that I know of in the Lunacud series from Russia. The Chinese have sent one up. India is about to send another up, I think. And yet, do we really know anything more about the moon that would be productive towards us being able to put people on the moon. Do you know, I think the biggest piece of news that ever came back was the bit from Clementine that suggested there was water. And the whole world exploded. 
And then the LRO came back and confirmed it. And then we started looking for water. And they started finding it in the spectral imaging and, and in the radar and the various different tools that they have. They were able to find what they believe. Oh, i got to put that phrase in there. Good journalism. What they believe to be water ice in the deepest, shadow, permanently shadowed areas of craters on the moon. But let me ask you a question. If they find the water, the single most important component that we need for a long-term base on the moon, why in bloody hell are they planning to put a, put a base on the top of Shackleton Craters Mountain? What is up with that? Only the farthest distance from any deep, dark crater with the potential for water inside. And water provides us the ability, even as water ice, provides us the ability not just for water, but that water is rocket fuel. That water could provide a foundation for growing crops. That water provides a foundation for establishing an air environment in which we could live in a short-sleeve environment. So why in blue blazes is NASA and these engineers planning on things on the top of Shackleton Crater? Yeah, I get the idea you got all this solar energy there. But how does it help you if you're nowhere near the water? And let's use a more important example, a more earthy example. One of the single most important elements during the land rush of the 1800s, during any pioneering wagon train or anything like that, was the existence nearby of water. You did not put a farm down if you didn't have water nearby. You needed to irrigate crops. You needed to have water. Washing, bathing, fresh water for drinking. Okay? This was one of the most critical things. So what are these people got in their brain that they're going to the, the highest peak away from the water instead of trying to find somewhere in between that at least gets them a compromise? Yes, I know Shackleton Crater, the mountain there, provides one, nearly 100% exposure to the sun for solar energy. But this nagging question comes up, if you're going to put a base, why aren't you putting it near a natural resource that you can use? I hear people talking and writing and papers and, and all of these things talking about in-situ resource utilization, and yet here they are again planting, planning to plant a base on the edge of Shackle and Crater, 95 to 100% sunlight all the time, and yet there's no local resources that they can use immediately. Everything is going to have to be processed by some industrial processes. And this doesn't make sense. So, once again, folks, it's KWAD Radio, broadcasting on the Internet through Blog Talk Radio. KWAD Radio is a part of WAD Media. We publish a monthly newsletter in the Phoenix metropolitan area. goes out, covers pop culture, a lot of neat things. We also have a science column. We've got com we cover comics, games, 
lot of things. Patty Holstram um, on this very channel, uh, once or twice a week minimum, has interviews with pop culture icons and, and people and upcoming events and things like that. So check back on our channel. We've got three interviews this week coming up. So keep uh, stay tuned and come back and see us out. In fact, we recently also added another show I'll give a, a plug for. Um, Song has been uh, has just joined our staff recently. What's your last name? Song. Song River has joined us and runs a music show for us once a month, and so sh- and so forth. What media also this year has uh, been integral in helping uh, generate publicity for Leprechaun Convention coming up May eighth through the eleventh in. Mesa, Arizona, the Mesa Marriott Hotel. It's www.leprechaun.org slash 40. Celebrating their 40th year. Lep 40, thank you. www.leprechaun.org slash lep40, L-E-P-40. Check it out, folks. Our number here is uh, 714-242-5145. Call in, challenge me, question me. I dare you. Let's check out the uh, next space together. NASA, they're not doing it all wrong, but they sure as hell are not doing it right, folks. Got to tell you. Let's, uh, let's talk about Buzz Aldrin for a moment. I admire this man, one of the first two men to set, set foot on the moon back in 69. He's been an icon for the movement to for the manned movement of manned exploration of space. And kudos to him for the books he's written, uh, some of which I have written, uh, have read, excuse me, um, and shared. And I've heard him speak a couple of times. Buzz Aldrin is part of the space establishment. And if I want to date myself, <laughs> I'm a hippie. Well, no, I never really was. But I understand the idea of the man. I understand the idea of the establishment. I understand the idea that government can't do what we the people need to do. And Buzz Aldrin is part of that establishment. Whether he wants to admit it or not, he is. He's still, even while part of that establishment, though, he's challenging NASA in his most recent book to talk about moving more towards a settlement paradigm. NASA's history has been one of exploration. They're not about long-term establishments anywhere. And so they're not going to look at anything that's going to be truly long-term, self-sufficient establishments anywhere. Not going to happen. And just to give you an idea of how unself-sufficient the International Space Station is, I was looking at something, and I'm still trying to figure out if I got these numbers right. But... um, 
as I recall, um, the International Space Station receives um, a shipment of supplies and material from Earth on oh where'd it go? Da 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 Okay, here we go. Nope, that wasn't it. They used to have on the NASA site a list of launches. Okay, this gives me an idea. All right, this month, interesting, there was a Progress 55 launch on the 9th. There is an orbital to commercial resupply services mission to the ISS coming up on the 6th of May. Orbital Sciences' second trip up is coming up then. But what I was looking for, there was a Expedition 39 went up on the 25th of March. We had... Now... Uh, Okay. I guess I can't seem to find it. <laughs> Here we go. This is what I'm looking for. To give you an idea of what we've sent to the ISS, there have been, according to, I'm on Wikipedia right here, and I'm looking at Wikipedia, list of unmanned space flights to the International Space Station. And interestingly enough, they go from all the way back to the Zariah Zvezda Zvezda uh, back in 98 and 2000, uh, all the way forward with the Progress launches and the Soyuz. And we come forward to 73, the 73rd launch of an unmanned craft to the ISS. Now, Here's one thing that, that, that kind of just gets my craw. This is kind of along the lines of uh, the same way that um, they're, they're, they want to use NC2 resource utilization, and yet they're putting their, their targeting Shackleton Crater's peak as a point about as far away from any water crater or water possible crater that you can get. So here we have, we've seen 73 unmanned spacecraft reach the ISS, or scheduled for the ISS. I need to, I need to, because we've had some adjustments here. So let's see, one, two, three are still planned. So I guess, okay, 70 craft. Now, we had a few fail to reach orbit. Um, we've had a few um stay there a little longer than they were planned. But for the most part, out of these 70 trips, 
And when you think about this, each one of these takes approximately 2,000 pounds of material up. So let's just do some math here. You've got 70 ships that have gone up since 1998. 70 independent separate launches. And this is just cargo and supplies. Most of them stayed up between 20 and 60 days and then came and then were filled full of trash and burned up in the atmosphere. And on average, as best I can tell, the amount of trash they fill it up, they, they pack it full. So I, I imagine there's probably 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of trash that they fill it up with. Of course, i got to wonder. you got six people on the space station, and that's only been recent in the last year or so. And before that, you only had three. How are they generating 1,000 to 1,200 pounds of trash in a month or th three weeks to a month? So we got 70 spacecraft that have gone up to the ISS over 20, 20 years. Now, if we look at that, that is... Boy, that's dismal. That's three and a half a year. Average. But let's think about this, because here's where my question comes in. We send up between Progress and Dragon and Cygnus and JAXA and all these others. 70 spacecraft have gone up to the ISS. 2,000 pounds apiece. Okay, 72 tons of supplies went up. And about a little less than that, 50 to 60,000 pounds burned up in the atmosphere with these spacecraft. Why in the blue blazes are we wasting these spacecraft? I understand that there's resource utilization issues at the ISS. But good enough you maybe docking interfaces be sent up and Shoot, with that many ships, 70 different craft gone up, couldn't we have built five Mars ships in that time? Couldn't we have built a ship that could have shuttled back and forth between Earth and the Moon? Couldn't, with all of those spacecraft, could we not have created um, containers for rocket fuel? Could we not have used... The propulsion modules for most of these craft as propellant depots and simply refilled them. This is such a, this is the tradition of government space programs. Wasteful, expensive, challenging, plotting. And as far as we, the common men, are concerned, little to no progress. When we come back after a break, we'll talk a little bit more about some positive ideas, things that I've seen, things that I might suggest. So keep in mind that. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Our number is 714-242-5145. Call in. Talk to me. Challenge me. Question me. I dare you. 
Welcome back. This is The Next Space, space news and commentary. My name is Don. Call in 714-242-5145. We're talking about space travel, space exploration, but mostly we're talking about space settlement, getting people into space to live and work and do stuff beyond chinking on rocks or having to repair a spacecraft and things like that. That number is 714-242-5145. I challenge you to call and challenge me, question me. I dare you. Keep in mind, this isn't about proving me wrong or right. That's not my goal here. My goal is the dissemination of information. I've watched, in fact, was a member of the Moon Society for quite a while. Uh, here, I was past president of a local chapter. And, you know, I learned a lot during that time. Uh, I learned a lot about what we didn't know. And I started really researching and doing a lot of stuff. And it, it got really interesting about what was happening that most of us did not know about. And that's what this show is going to be about. We're going to be talking about, uh, somewhat, somewhat as I introduced tonight, the uh, upcoming things that we have going on now between Bigelow building space habitats that are far cheaper, far more effective, far more protective than the tin cans that NASA does. We'll be talking about uh, space tourism and companies like Virgin Galactic, which within a year, perhaps a year and a half, hopefully will be starting their launch sites. We'll be introducing more conversations about the spaceports that have sprouted up around the country, uh, particularly the New Mexico um, out in Texas. I'll have to get that information for the next show. We've got a lot going on with SpaceX. Good. All righty. It sounds like we had connection problems. Isn't the Internet wonderful? So we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show this evening. Everybody, enjoy your week. We'll be back next week, Sunday night, to talk more about the next space. Join us. My name is Don. We'll be talking about the next space. News, commentary, and discussion about NASA, about SpaceX, about Bigelow, about all the people in the news this week. For those of you following us on the WAD, check us out on the web at WAD.net. Check us out on the newspaper in the Phoenix metro area, the WAD newspaper at many various different gaming, bookstores, coffee shops around the valley. Check us out next month. May 8th through the 11th, we'll be at Leprechaun 2014 in Mesa, Arizona at the convention there. And follow us on our next show, which will be Ben Pandaya. Panja. is an author that Ms. Hallstrand will be interviewing Tuesday, April 22nd, 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Check us out there also on April 24th, 5.30 to 6.30. She'll be working with uh, mixed leprechaun dealers talking about the upcoming convention. 
And third, we'll be working uh, a show talking with Sarah Mason, also an author, on April 25th at 5.30 to 6.30. So come join us on KWOD Radio, and we'll see you next week. Question us. Challenge us. I dare you.